but let's talk about the psychological contract. There should be a psychological contract between employer and employee. You do this for us and we'll do this for them. You know, you, you give heart, body and soul and we'll look after you. But there needs to be more of a two-way psychological contract. And that's what's missing. The lack of psychological safety. So people go, oh, I see, you're on your own. Bye. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast brought to you by Cartavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. We're back here for episode 97 with our guest, Jonathan Bowman Perks. Jonathan is coming to us from London, and he's here to talk about leadership. In fact, the title today is Heart and Soul Leadership, People First Leadership Strategies for the 21st Century. Jonathan Bowman Perks has had an incredible journey in his life. He served many couple of decades in the military. In fact, his father was in the military. You will hear a very touching and inspiring story about how Jonathan's father was killed uh, as a Navy test pilot. We're going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about honesty, integrity, and transparency, about vulnerability, humility, about dignity. We're going to talk about the idea that leaders must care about the heart and soul of the organization, which is the people. And you're going to hear something brand new. Never heard this term before. This idea of having a psychological contract with your people, where part of what you're going to provide as a leader is psychological safety. You're going to love this wide ranging conversation. And I know you're going to be inspired, uplifted and walk away with tangible tools to enhance your leadership starting today. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. I am thrilled to be back here today with someone who is fast becoming a good friend. We only just met probably about six weeks ago when I had the honor to be on Jonathan Bowman Perks podcast. Uh, and just so we're clear, this is a guy that knows podcasting. He is ranked <laughs> in the top 2% of global podcasters. Uh, Jonathan is coming to us from the UK. He is similar to me, all things leadership. I feel like he lives, breathes, and sleeps it. My guess is if he's like me, he also dreams it <laughs> and, and wakes up with new awareness. He loves asking questions. Uh, I, I will tell you that uh, he asked me some unique questions when I was on his podcast, and we had a lovely time together, yeah. and some things came out that I wasn't even expecting, and that, that makes it uh, very special. So Jonathan is a coach, you know, master certified coach. He works with leaders. He works with teams. Uh, he's written uh, two books. Uh, he's actually two books, plus he contributed to a book with his wife, Lee. His next book is called Inspiring CEOs and Boards. Stay tuned for that. Uh, he's a former leader within the uh, British Army. So he's got a wide range of experience, both from the military side, but a long history in the corporate world. And all I'll tell you is Jonathan's got heart. My experience is he's got heart and he comes at this 
from a deep desire to learn and help people have richer lives and richer experiences. So welcome, Jonathan. Jeff, thank you. It's uh, and Craig, it's a real pleasure to be on your on your show. Yeah, great to have you. Real admiration for you both and and what you stand for and who you are. Just the way you show up is is why I was so keen to be with you again. Thank you. Well, awesome, Jonathan. So let's jump right to the deep end. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're all here to talk about leadership. I think it's one of the most confused things on the planet. But I guess what's your take on the state of leadership today? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a good one. Um, I, I think we're in a bit of a crisis at the moment, certainly politically. Mm, we need yeah. leadership more than ever. Uh, and in politics, it's uncool to be in leadership. If you've got a choice, you want to go make some money in the corporate world. Very few are attracted to the comedians and, and the sort of showboating that goes on by people in politics where they can't actually tell the truth. They have to cover up, obfuscate. And it's the opposite of what I'd call as hit, honesty, integrity, and transparency. (laughs) They do everything that they can to do the opposite. So we need more leaders than ever. And if if people are thinking of doing that, I would encourage them to do so. And in corporate life, uh, we have some scandals. We have some dishonesty. We have lots more regulation. But actually, the more regulation we impose, being on the banks, it's just they find other ways to, to obfuscate and hide things to get the Ferrari by mugging people on you know, bonds and mortgage-backed securities or whatever new scam they'll come up with next. So we need more leaders ever than we ever have. But I'll say one final thing and then hand back over to you both. Uh, it's just the time we need it more. I found in the middle of the pandemic, people went, oh, no, we're stopping all leadership development and all coaching. We can't afford it. <laughs> Okay, so right. So right in the middle of a crisis, you're going, oh, we'll do a savings cut. We're going to get rid of leadership. We don't need it anymore. And they're all going, where do we go? What do we do? I don't know what to do. And the leaders go, I don't know what to do either. Can someone help me? No, I can't afford to help you. You're on your own, mate. Bye. Yeah, they did that with the salespeople too. They're like, oh yeah, we, we can't sell during you know a crisis. I mean, my no. goodness. No. What, no. what crazy people are out there? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. That's... Divisional CEO, I, you know, when I look at CEO math, I think, you know, there's some CEOs that are additive, there's some that are subtractive, there's some that are divisive, and there's some that multiply. Yeah. And, uh, you know, ultimately, it sounds like uh, there's, there's some needs out there. Yeah. Well, actually, let's just pick up on that, Craig, because uh, one of the, my CEOs said, it, it's, like, it's like triage in first aid. Uh, you know, I was in the military and, and you had a problem. You do breathing, bleeding, and shock. So, is the organization still breathing? Is the company alive? <laughs> is, it, is it breathing? Yes, it's breathing. Okay, keep it going. Keep it going. Is it, is it bleeding? Is it hemorrhaging cash? Uh, yes or no? And then are all the leaders like this uh, in shock and going, uh, and it's closing their doors like they did in the, in the financial crash in 2008. They just hid in their offices and like told nobody anything because they didn't know what was going on because it was doing that. So if you've got breathing, bleeding, and shock, and they can survive that, the company will live. <laughs> well, I, I just realized I got all excited and skipped the first question. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, We're going to hold that spot energetically because I've got some follow-ups for you. But uh, Jonathan, give us a little bit of your journey that gets yeah. us here today. Okay, my journey. Uh, wow. Um, grew up in a caravan uh, with um, my parents, he was a fast jet pilot. And my, my mom was uh, uh, a mother of 
three. So there was three of us. Um, and then we got a knock on the door one day and a smartly dressed naval officer complete with, I get it now. Here's a prop. Uh, here he is. Smartly dressed naval officer came along and said, uh, we're terribly sorry to say that your husband, uh, Commander Paul Perks has been killed while flying. And, um, that's it really. Um, and so from that moment, everything changed. Uh, we were no longer guests of the Royal Navy. Uh, we were no longer welcome and we had to go on a very small pension and make our own way. And it was very tough. Uh, go forward a number of years, I decided that I didn't want to join the Navy, much as I admired my father, who was undoubtedly a hero, as you'll hear in a minute. But I, I wanted to go and be an officer. I wanted to lead people. And so I joined the British Army. I went to the Royal Military Academy, Santos, and uh, had a good career. Went really well for a long time. Got exceptional reports, outstanding. Uh, but then I got chosen to go to Top Gun School, which was the military academy, <laughs> to be an instructor. Whoa, I thought I'd arrived. I, you know, I was God's gift to, to leadership. <laughs> As all big, of us pilots think, right? <laughs> big mistake. Big mistake. Oof. So I got my first report and they went, yeah, yeah, you're average. I went, what do you mean average? I mean, my, my dad, he didn't do average. He did outstanding. You mean I'm average? Yep. And of course, the guys who I was with, they've all gone to become generals and, you know, of businesses, they've done very well, but I was not doing well. So in the crisis, I reached out to anybody who knew my father, uh, who was killed when I was three, the man I never knew really. And I said, anybody knew Commander Paul Perks killed Changi in 1964, please write to his son. I got letters from all over the world. Wow. And I invited some to come and have lunch. We're having lunch, a lovely lunch. And after a few glasses of wine, one of them said, Jonathan, your father bought my ticket. What do you mean? He said, your father died in my airplane. He was the commanding officer test flying them all oh. as the best pilot to make them safe for us off the aircraft carrier, HMS Victorious in Changi. And the sixth aircraft was mine. It had a fault. It would have killed me, but it killed your dad. And the guy sitting to my left, uh, Bill White, he said, I was your father's navigator, his co-pilot. He banged me out. He ejected me to save my life. But like, do you remember Top Gun with Goose? Yeah. When he, my father pressed the ejector button, it sent him into the tailpiece at 100 Flat miles spin. an hour yeah. and, and, and killed him. And wow. uh, his body was washed up. And that's when we got the naval officer telling us, we're really wow. sorry, but your, your husband's been killed. Man, and so that's, that that's why I do what I do. That's why I'm with you guys now, because Bill said to me then these key words. He said, you have a choice, gentlemen. You can be a victim. Poor me, you know, brought up. Mum, age 35, three kids, under the age of nine. You know, poor me, life didn't work out because I didn't have a dad. Or you can make your father your inspiration. Look for other men and women who are inspiring. Learn from them and pay it forward to others, which is wow. why Jeff and I met. And now you, you and I, Craig, as well. So that's why I'm here. That, thank you. Story. Thank you, Jonathan. I did not know that story. That, is, that had to be a powerful moment. That lunch, that's when, the, when the, I mean, when you told what that man said about your father bought the ticket, I just started to get goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I mean, it, it transformed my life. Uh, not at that moment, because a bit like Steve Jobs says, you join the dots up going looking back. Right. But what happened was I, I said to him, I said, how long? Uh, I'll, I'll leave his name out because he feels so bad. about it. I said, how long have you held this thought that you? you should have been dead and my father should have been having lunch with wow. me, not you. He said, 
30 years, 30 years. I said, look, for whatever it's worth, let go of that. That's what inspiring leaders do. They take a bullet, or in this case, they, they, they die for somebody else because they're the leader and they take responsibility and accountability to make sure they're, the people they lead are safe. Now, not many people have to die for their jobs, but in, in this case, my father did, but still people remember the legacy he left and the inspiration he had of how he showed up with the way he was as a very humble, human and big heart kind of guy. Wow. One thing I'd like to ask about that, the man, this man said to you, you have a choice. And I love that for a lot of reasons. One is I, one of my core principles of living life is that I always have a choice. That's a big one for me. It guides me every day. The other is I certainly believe, and I think I'm going to say I'm borrowing it from Simon Sinek. I've read it from him where he said that leadership is not a rank or position. It's a choice. And I certainly agree with that. And I believe it's a choice you make in the moment. It's not necessarily you claimed a title of leadership, but every day you get to choose whether you're going to lead in the moment or not. So can you talk more about what that means to you going forward around choice? I, I, I so related to that when you talked about that when we were uh, on the Inspire Leadership podcast. And I thought I've met a, a soulmate uh, in you, Jeff. I really feel that. In the, uh, I love the work of Man's Search for Meaning, the book by Viktor Frankl, when he said between stimulus and response, you always have choice. And, and it's how you choose to respond to a situation. And, and leadership is not a, a name badge on the door <laughs> or, or a car parking spot. It, it's a choice you make to lead. And you don't actually, I'm a leader, but I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm a, a, a team of one in my company. I'm a director of my own company, but I'm a team of one. But I choose every day to take a leadership position, which requires courage and it requires humility, but it requires discipline. And I'm not just saying that as a military, a former military man. Sorry about that. Let's just turn this thing off. Um, it, it, it's because you choose, you choose to lead. And it, it's like, We've all done mindfulness and meditation, and every time, uh, every time you you do some mindfulness, your mind drifts off, and you choose to bring it back on, and then it goes off again, and then you choose to bring it back on, and it, and it's constant work. You know, we, we I, someone once said, we're the incomplete leader with a complete team in the best of worlds. We're never the finished product, and I am definitely not the finished product. I made way more mistakes than Jeff you ever made, and certainly more than you, Craig. So, <laughs> but, but I'm learning from them. You know, that's, that's my aim is to learn from them so I don't repeat the same one. I, I once, uh, with the American connection, I, I think hopefully your audience would love this. So I was the chief of staff of uh, a headquarters of officers at the British Army Staff College going to the American Army Staff College, and we went to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas City, Kansas. And um, we were doing a big war game, preparing for, funny enough, something to do with Iran and Iraq, which was about, <laughs> about 30 years ago. Interesting. And, and um, I had a veteran general from Vietnam as my mentor in Fort Leavenworth. And I was the chief of staff trying to organize all these very fine officers. 
many who'd been special forces and they all end up generals. They were far better than I was. I was trying to herd these cats. I didn't really know what being a chief of staff of a brigade headquarters was like. I hadn't done it before. But he got me over. He said, Jonathan, he said, I'm here to help you uh, know where the anti-personnel mines are buried. OK, I've stood on some of them so I can save you the pain of you blowing your foot off. Said, but overnight, little bastards have been out and they've put some more out there. I don't know about those ones, but I can save you from standing on the ones I've stood on and give you some life hacks and some shortcuts. He was the wisest man wow. I've ever come what a great what, what a great analogy for that. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Uh, I love that. You, you know, there's so many things you're already offered out there, Jonathan. One thing I want to touch on, you talked about your hit concept, honesty, integrity, and transparency. And to me, they're all very much interrelated. So I'm curious, can you share with us what each of those mean to you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, firstly, uh, I must give the honor for hit to Steve Kuhn and his colleague in the Green Berets, both ex-American uh, military guys. And they've written another book, which I recommend, called uh, Unlock Your Humble Alpha, Unlock Your Hum Humble Alpha, which is a, a great little analogy. And um, in it, honesty, integrity, and transparency. Honesty, for me, is really facing into yourself. Look in the mirror, the man in the mirror, and go, really? Who are you trying to kid? You know, you, you've actually done wrong or you've done right. There is, there is no gray. And so the first person you have to be honest with yourself. And I know looking back yes. in my life, like Jeff and I have shared stories before, that I, I got some things wrong. I had a first marriage which didn't work out. And I, I did some stupid things. And I, I wasn't utterly honest. And I at the time, beat myself up for a long time. I've now come to terms with it. But now, now I'm beautifully remarried to Lee and in a happy relationship. I am utterly honest with her. She wakes me up at two in the morning and says, what's going on? I go, this. And I like, I leave my phone lying around or anything like that. She can look at anything. There's nothing. I'm not hiding anything. So honesty is a whole calling. It's a way of being. And, and I know from bitter experience of not being completely honest, how I don't want to go back to that dark place. And a little white lie, they think it's okay, but it just grows and it grows and it spreads. And then you have to make another story to cover the other story. And, right. and it gets yourself in a bundle. So honesty. Integrity is when I, when I think of uh, guys who were taken as prisoners of war in Korea, some of the US servicemen, there was one who was very famous, and he wrote a note back to his son. He never knew if he was going to see his son again. And he said, there's one word, son, you should remember, and it's integrity. Mm. The word is integrity. And this is a guy who'd been really mistreated, really mistreated uh, as a prisoner of war. But he kept his integrity. And, and that was integrated, is like the whole. And, and so in my inspiring leadership compass, with all the eight elements of it, it's about the whole person. The opposite of integrated and integrity is disintegrated when you fall <laughs> apart right. and, bits, and bits are missing. And then, and then transparency is what you see is what you get, WYSIWYG, that, that it, you, 
wherever you can. I mean, there's sometimes like one of my, my CEOs has just done a big deal. He's made a number of millions from it, but he couldn't, for legal reasons, he couldn't tell everybody he was in the middle of the deal what he was doing until it was announced. So there's sometimes when, for legal reasons, you can't be utterly transparent. You have to say, I can't tell you about this at the moment, but for legal reasons, it held that. But whenever you can, mm-hmm. tell people what you can tell them uh, because it will help their brains cope with change. And there's the, the mnemonic um, SCARF, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness, which I can talk about to help people with uh, thinking well from the neuroscience point of view. But, hmm. but that, that was uh, how I'd unpick uh, HIT. Yeah, I would definitely say that those are, those are things that drive trust as well. And that's that's core foundation that we talk about a lot. Yeah, tr- I mean, trust is such a big thing. Uh, trustworthiness and and uh, psychological safety. Uh, when I when I look at teams that work and teams that don't work, and and you work with some fantastic organisations, the pair of you. But the thing that unpicks it all, there isn't psychological safety. There's there's either somebody there who they can't fully trust, or uh, got a bit of a toxic culture. Whatever might go on, trust is the foundations of the building. The building will fall yeah. over if it hasn't got the right. Fa- any kind of relationship. Yeah. So a couple of things I want to uh, dig into. Integrity, and I'm guessing I want some feedback on this. I see a lot of people, leaders and non-leaders, and I say that and people are choosing not to lead, not positions. <laughs> um, I see a lot of people who are out of integrity by my definition. And because my definition is a form of alignment between words, beliefs, actions. And sometimes it's very egregious. You know, someone says, I'm very, um, I care about people, but they're, you know, they're verbally abusive. That's a lack of integrity. But where I see it that feels like it's more subtle is a lack of consistency in how they see things. Uh, So I'll give you a really quick example. Pretty recent. Someone I know is a coach. And they help people transform. I mean, that's what coaches do. And they were telling me a story about someone that they knew that they had trust issues with, right? And, but what they said was this, they said, I'd have trust issues with them because they've told me about in the past, they were not trustworthy. And I said, well, so in the past, they were not trustworthy, but you're telling me they've been working on themselves but you have a trust issue based on how they used to be. They said, absolutely. And I said, well, it sounds like for me, what I hear is you have a part of you that doesn't believe people can change. Hmm. Yet you're a coach. That That seems like a little thing, but I pick up on those and I see those in life to say, wait a minute, those don't make sense. And are you aware they don't make sense? And are you looking at that? So I guess, Talk to me more about that perspective on integrity and how you see that showing up for leaders or not. Yeah, well, I mean, particularly with the story you told me in the entire leadership series and my own story I've just told you, that, that in the past, I, I wasn't at integrity with myself between what I believed in and what I read about and what I said and how I was acting. But that doesn't mean I'm wrecked for life. So I, I, I do believe that You've got to give someone a chance. Now, yep. you know, fool on you if you trust someone and again and again they do that. And I, I had this, I, 
I had a, a friend who was godfather to my uh, daughter. Um, I was buying some property in Cyprus, put a lot of money into buying some properties uh, through someone else, and, and it seemed okay, but I wasn't so sure. Anyway, it turned out to be a complete uh, sham. Uh, and it was a scam and I couldn't sell the properties. I suppose that they were promising to sell it on and they had a sales team. They never had any sales team. They just wanted to get you soak your money in there. And I was going deeper and deeper into debt. And um, a, a friend of mine, this friend of Godfather to my daughter said, oh, I know someone who's really good. He's a multimillionaire. He's from India. He'll help you. He'll buy the property. And here, this guy visited back and forth to Cyprus many times uh, to do the deal. And in the last one, I went with them, and, and it was clear to me that things weren't right. I, I, my gut, the, the head, heart, gut, and wallet is always the, a, a good thing. <laughs> my head was saying, logically, I need to solve this. I am almost insolvent. I'm in deep shit. I've got to get out of this. My heart was saying, I don't trust this guy. My gut was saying, get out of here. This guy's a <laughs> scammer. But anyway, I sort of, it, it just, anyway. It sort of all fell through. Anyway, I carried on with these debts and I wasn't trying to solve it. I ended up giving the properties away almost. I lost $300,000 yeah. in the process. It cleared out everything I had. Um, I, I spoke to someone else a, a few months later and he said I was working with this guy. And I won't mention this name. Um, but they went, oh, you do know he's been to jail for property fraud. I went, what? Oh. Yeah, he's been to jail. I said, does Craig know? Oh, yeah, he knows. I go, so I ring this, my friend up and I say, did this guy, Silver, go to jail for property fraud? And he went, oh, yeah, but that was just like three years ago. He, he's much better now. Now, but he's just shown me that he's not. He's just defrauded me again. Hmm. So it's almost like sharks smell water. You get little old lady gets defrauded. Someone comes in to help her. He defrauds her again. And then someone helps her. And, and so sometimes... Fool on you, you can get scammed again and again and again. And I was. And, and there was a group of 20 of us who all got scammed by this. And there's a, wow. there's a court case. And the woman at the beginning went to, went to jail, which was good. But this guy, I think, got away with it. Um, but the, the point was, generally, I, I look for the best in people. Mm -hmm. and, and I want to, to believe in them and see good. But you've also got to do your due diligence. Don't go blindly in, is my advice. Well, part of this, what you're talking about there is really understanding yourself and being able to understand your body's interpretation of diff different things. So if you're, if you're gut saying, you know, leave, but your mind is saying, but he's a friend, I, I should trust him and so forth. You understand that a lot of people don't understand how to trust their gut. What yeah. would you say is something that helps people to lean into that trust yeah it's really interesting head heart gut and wallet head 89 billion neurons heart 100 100 million neurons in the heart the gut interesting no uh sorry 40 40 000 around the gut uh, the, the little mini brain Forty thousand neurons around the around the heart the, the gut the gastrointestinal tract 100 million neurons which really? is why the intermittent fasting which i'm doing is so good for me and i'm huh. finding i'm feeling so much better with uh, autophagy and ketosis is just fabulous. My brain is so much clearer. Huh. Um, but, but you've got to, if you're getting a gut instinct, it's many signals coming in in different ways, which that little mini brain down there of the gut is saying, no, 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 no. 
listen to it. I've always now, if I have a gut instinct about someone, I go, actually, I'll pass. It's not for me or someone else. I had this with some guys uh, in a, a country in the Middle East, and they wanted to do some work with me. And I went, it's, it's, I, I did some first work, but I saw the way they treated somebody else. Yeah. And they got to do lots of work, and then they didn't pay them. And they didn't say sorry or anything or no thanks. Hmm. And then they wanted me to do more work with them. And I went, actually, guys, it's not me. Yeah. Time out, not me. And they went, oh, no, we'll wait for you. I said, no, no, it's, it's just not me. Uh, find somebody else. And, and so often it's better to, to close one door because down the corridor, there's going to be another door that will open. And, and that's, that's where you have to have that abundant thinking. Yes. That, yeah. you know, it's not just this, this isn't the only opportunity for you. You are so right, Craig. And, and what, one of the things that's the problem for people in our profession, you guys and myself, is that in the pandemic and the recession that we've now got, people are going, oh, my God, scarcity. No, no. And they sort of prostitute themselves. Oh, I'll do anything, whatever you want. I'll, I'll be anything. You know, I can do anything, which is where Bob Newhart, not Bob Newhart, I was thinking of um, oh, the news broadcaster, uh, Earl Nightingale, who was oh, yeah. uh, one, of my, one of my early heroes. He yeah. talks about in the Great Depression, people would talk about, I'll do any job, but they never got a job. They never got a job. <laughs> they, they, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. But the ones who, who targeted and they went to an organization and they studied it. And in the days before the internet, they found out all about them. And they said, I understand some of your problems and I have some okay. solutions. I'm prepared to work for you for a week for free. And if you like me, take me on. Always got a job. Totally makes sense. Always got a job. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you, you alluded a couple times to COVID, the pandemic. And I'm curious about your perspective on leadership during this time. And I'll, I'll preface it with this. I made a comment recently that I, I saw some epic failures in leadership during COVID. And in, in that, I think a lot of leaders failed to really acknowledge and address what was happening to their people. And then I heard some feedback of saying, well, I don't know if it really was because the leaders, they had struggles too, and they just didn't know how to do it. And I felt like that was such a cop out <laughs> yes, like that, but that's the leader's job, right? It's not to have it together at all. That's not what I mean, but to come up with so the leader's job is to still deal with what's in front of them versus just sort of saying, well, I got no answers here. I'll see you <laughs> on the other side. Right. And I hope we're all okay. Yeah, yeah, good luck what with you that. see with leadership <laughs> during yeah, COVID. That, that is, I have so much experience of this, clearly. Um, firstly, a great resource for people listening is the audiobook, The Motive by Patrick Lencioni. I don't know whether you've come across it. It's only two and a half hours. It's a really good listen. But in it, a CEO has the wrong motivation and another CEO is giving some, yeah. him some advice. And, and being a chief execution officer who executes things, not people. <laughs> I was going to say, I've, I've met those leaders before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, chief, you know, the, the one who executes on things and gets things done, uh, rather than just an executive, which sounds very neutral and rather passive, that, that they have to make decisions. Mm -hmm. Their job is to make decisions and to be in meetings. And, and if you're virtual, where's the leadership happening well it's happening in meetings because they're spending all their time in meetings so that's where the leadership is so the meetings must have decisions actions next step who's accountable delivery deadlines but also where some leaders were good and some were bad the the, the good leaders people forget what you say 
They forget what you do, but they never forget how you make them feel. Right. So they would always check in. How are you feeling? Mm-hmm. And, and, and Craig would say, I'm fine. And Jonathan would go, Craig, I'm not hearing fine at all. <laughs> I'm fine, fine. Is, fine is effed up, insecure, neurotic, and excitable. Fine <laughs> is not good. And, and I'm not hearing that. Now, what's really going on? How are you really, Craig? And you go, do you know what? I'm really not in a good place because, you know, my wife's not well or daughter's got COVID or whatever it might be. So I think uh, I, I saw a, a lot of the best of the things I learned in my 20 years in the military compared to my 20 years as a managing director and being in business and coaching people. Uh, the lessons from my time on operations in the military, Bosnia, Northern Ireland and, and elsewhere were really useful for the CEOs I was advising in the pandemic and still are, such as this is not a sprint, not even a marathon. Yes. It's a triathlon. Right. But no one's told you how many laps of the lake you're going to have to swim yeah. or when to stop swimming and then transit to the bike and how many laps of the cycle track you're going to have to do before they say change and then how many circuits of the run. No one's told you this, but, it, but life is in the transition is a great book and well worth listening. And good leaders in the pandemic really got to know their people. What's your life story? It was one of the great ones, one of my leaders. He'd find out people's life stories and where they're motivated and what drives them. So he could check in with them and touch their soul and really connect with them because they're so lost and they've never had the playbook. No one's done this before. And it's crazy that people that so-called leaders don't actually know that much about their people. Yeah. It makes no, no sense. No, no. They really don't doing, know them. Now you're talking crazy. Jonathan. I, know. You're, I know. You just said that leaders, you, you telling me that you expect leaders to touch the soul of their people. <laughs> I mean, come on, really? Like, why would we do that? I mean, it's, it's human to do that and it's quite natural to do that, but why would we think that leaders are going to do that? And this is, since you can't see my face, it is sarcasm. Yeah. Because I've been told that my sarcasm's so good, everybody believes me. Yeah. yeah. Your, 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 like, cha- your chair's gone down. You've disappeared. I've lost you. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> 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 your head. <laughs> but you know, your, your sarcasm is is uh, befits you. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. I've been a Beta Gamma Sigma member for the last twenty years. If you're looking to hire, the right candidate is closer than you think. Beta Gamma Sigma is the International Business Honor Society, exclusively for students at the top of their class in the top 5% of business schools in the world. BGS members are academic achievers, skilled leaders, and experienced problem solvers, and their skills and experience extend beyond the classroom. They hold chapter leadership positions, attend global business summits, complete ethics trainings, and engage in world-class internships with top corporations. When you hire a Beta Gamma Sigma member, you are truly hiring the best in business. For more information, email bgshonors at betagammasigma.org to learn more about how to hire BGS members. Welcome back. What is so interesting is that if you think about corporations in America or Britain or, or where else, they are by their nature psychopathic. Because a psychopath it has, an, it has a legal identity, but they have no heart and they have no soul. The corporations have a legal identity. They're a corporation, but they have no heart and soul. So they'll do anything they want to survive, which is 
maximize shareholder value. But really, do they care about the stakeholders, the people who give to the yeah. corporation, their families? I mean, those big corporations that I was working with will remain nameless, but suddenly went, stop all coaching. But I said, I've got two sessions left. I'll do it for free. No, no, stop it. We're not, because otherwise we have to pay you. But I said, this person has had a breakdown three months ago, and you've just got them back in a new role, and, and they need help. No, we're stopping. No, you know, end. And I go, that's not caring for the soul and the heart of your organization, which is all about your people. It's nothing but the people. There are assets and diggers and machines and computers, but someone's got to make it work until we get to the day of artificial intelligence, where we won't need humans at all. And you and I will not be here. It'll be a bot talking to a bot talking to a bot. So that's just my experience. Well, I, I love that. And it's interesting because I've heard that so often the last few months, the word care. And then I've heard people interpret it as, well, you know, are we really supposed to care for our people? <laughs> what? Because, but Craig, you have, I've heard on the podcast some people saying, well, no, because, but there's this belief that that's like an old definition of caring. Like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, my father's generation, there was a mindset of caring, but it was financial caring. Like people said, I'm going to work her for 40 or 50 years. Mm -hmm. You will take care of me. And today, that's not the model. However, this is really that emotional caring, that what yeah. you said, that psychological caring that was so necessary and still is during this pandemic. I mean, I, I've heard a couple speak people in the last 48 hours talk about that one of the biggest issues we're going to deal with going forward is millions and millions of people around the world due to the pandemic, are going to be suffering from post-traumatic stress. They have, this experience has been so traumatic for them that they need, they're going to need some treatment of some kind for wow. PTS. And, and, and this is, so this is mental health stuff. And that's where I look at leaders and say, did you do your job the last 12 months to minimize that? and humanize the process and humanize the experience and humanize your communication and check because in with you didn't you contributed to that trauma yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, th this is such a key point so ptsd i want to come back to this and talk about my brother who i think i might have mentioned to you before uh and friends of mine in the special forces who got ptsd and talked about it but let's talk about the psychological contract there should be a psychological contract between employer and employee you do this for us and we'll do this for this. You know, you, you give heart, body and soul and we'll look after you. This began to break down in the British military about um, 15 years ago, uh, 20 years ago, maybe 20 years, uh, 20, 25 years ago, uh, when General Sir Richard Dannett, now Lord Dannett, was the head of the British Army. And he was my old boss in, the, in, the, in my regiment from the same regiment. And, and he encouraged the government to set up the military covenant a covenant, almost, almost of a religious nature, that you will give your life potentially for your country, go and serve in Iraq, Afghanistan, Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Sierra Leone, wherever it might be. And in return, if you're injured or, or killed, we'll look after you and your family and make sure that you get a good deal. Because for so long, people in business 
could pour some coffee on their lap and sue their, their company because the coffee was too hot and get $100,000. But a guy get a leg blown off in Iraq and he'd get $5,000. Now, yeah. where is the sense in that? So there needs to be a, a covenant, a, a, a psychological contract, which is not one-sided. It's like, you give for us and we'll look after you. Now, in your father's day, in my father's day, it was a job for life and they'd look after you. It's quite paternal. But that's broken down. There's, you know, zero hours contracts and whatever goes on. And, but it sounds like even that broke down for you after your dad died. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think it did because there was a small naval pension, but it really wasn't enough to get us through. And, and even when I think about the 20 years I did in the military, the small pension I get is a joke. I, I can't live off it, which is why I'll have to keep working till I'm in my 80s, really because there isn't enough. Oh, I'm happy to do so if I have to. I'd rather not work at the level I'm working at now. But, but there needs to be more of a two-way psychological contract. And that's what's missing, the lack of psychological safety. So people go, oh, I see, you're on your own. Bye. And so they just stay for a year or two. They don't see a long-term career. I was talking to some of the consultants in Deloitte and KPMG, and I goes, you've got a problem because the young people working for you today go, so you want me to stay and become a partner like you, but you give everything, you're never with your family. You're traveling all over the world yeah. and you've been here 20 years and you get, okay, you get a million a year, a million dollars a year, but, but I don't want that. I want experiences yeah. and I'll stay somewhere for a couple of years and then I'll move on and get a different experience. Why would I stay 20 years? No. I want a life. It's a problem. It's a problem. Well, I think that's an interesting uh, label you put on it, Jonathan. You said that in my father's generation and your father's, and Craig as well, your father, I think, from what I, I don't know, the, I know your dad's older than my dad. Um, yeah, he's 92. It was, it was very parental. And I think some people now, when they hear caring, they think, well, that's not how it's supposed to be. But we're really talking about this caring concern as a fellow comrade in this team that yeah. we've created. Right. I'm not over, I'm not caretaking you, but I feel like you have my back and I have your back. Mm -hmm. That kind of caring concern amongst the group that, yeah. and I think that's what people want today. And I, I, there's no abdication in that. They're not saying just take care of me, but be caring towards me, care mm -hmm. about my story, care about who I am. Mm -hmm. And, and frankly, what I love about Larry English, what he shared on our podcast was we invite people to bring their whole selves to work. We don't pretend that they've got this life out there. We want them to have a life and we want them to bring all of themselves here. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's such a good point, bringing the whole of you to work, which is why I talk about the integrated, inspiring leader. It, it's, um, and this is where in the pandemic and we're working from home and we're in our second year of working from home, that the, the boundaries are blurred between work and home life. And, and in fact, you have to put some boundaries in because the danger is not about you guys, but I, in, in the effort to get more business and keep the money up because it, the incomes come down, you, you end up working late evenings and weekends and, and you've got to look after yourself. Your mental health and well-being is about boundaries and switching off and digital sunsets and AM routine and PM routine right. and enough sleep and a whole range of things, which I find fascinating which is all about mental health. But there's, as you say, let's come back to the PTSD. 
there's so many cases of mental health issues that, that will be going on for years to come. PTSD, it, it, we, we used to see it in combat. And as I said, one of my friends who did four tours with the special forces, two-year mm-hmm. tours, in some really dodgy places from Colombia to Afghanistan and Iraq and saw some horrendous things. He, he is suffering badly from PTSD. And um, it, it you know, comes back and haunts him. He doesn't know when it's going to come. My, my brother, uh, on the 14th of January, uh, was attacked by a former, well, by a colleague of his. Um, mm. It's alleged. We've yet to find out what happened. But somebody attacked him, let's say, and uh, tried to murder him and burn his house down with his family in. Now, Graham's still getting flashbacks. He's, he's out, out of three operations and five weeks in hospital. Mm. And I managed to see him the other week, which was a, a joy, because I thought he was close to dying. He was blood pressure, 40 beats per minute, and, and he'd lost 40 units of blood and wow. a major transfusion. And the guy had stuck a knife through him in four vital organs. And that, mm. you know, he's 65. He, he, he almost died. The reason I say that is, He's in shock, and he'll never probably get over that. He'll always be having flashbacks to that. Now, people haven't had that happen to them in the recession and the pandemic, but they've had some major things which, in a different way, will stay with them and make them a scarcity rather than an abundance mentality and a fear of the future. Well, then you've got you know the reality of the disconnection that's happening. And I think there's a lot of unintended impact Someone I know really well loves her job, loves her job. But one of the things that her employer put in place with the remote working is their system tracks when you're on your computer. And in other words, we don't trust you. Well, but they don't say that's what it is. Wow. But the reality is, I'm seeing some research that says that that's actually creating more stress, that people, to your point, are overworking. And it's not just that they don't feel trusted, which is an impact. There's also this unintended impact of people are more stressed, more overworked, setting fewer boundaries. They're actually working harder than ever, but yeah. not in a good way. And burnout is going up because of these tracking systems. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the employers aren't thinking about that. And sometimes we have impact we don't know. But once we start to know, do we take action to change it? Yeah. What, right. what gets measured gets done, doesn't it? You know, whatever you measure people will take that as the, which is why balanced scorecards are so much better than how much money you make will give you a bonus to do that. <laughs> right. You want to think about, you know, are you measuring your contribution to society? Are you measuring your contribution to your colleagues? How you are as a team player? Uh, are, are you measuring customer satisfaction, employee engagement? Uh, you know, are people paid around that? And they're not yet. It's all still thinking people are motivated by just loads of money. And that's not the only but thing. Really, that's, that's down quite a bit on the list of what people really want from, mm-hmm. a, from an employer. Yeah, Daniel Pink did that very good book, you know, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates People. Yeah. And uh, money was really quite a low thing. I remember a classic with one of my very wealthy bankers, investment bankers. I was coaching her. And um, we were doing, we were doing a, a session on identity. And I said, you know, we we're talking through the exercise. And I said, who are you? And she said, I'm poor. And I laughed. <laughs> she was dead serious. I went, you're serious, aren't you? She said, yeah, I'm poor. I said, compared to who? <laughs> compared to my boss, because he gets paid, let's say, I think it was, this was about the figures, you know, a million dollars a year. And his bonus was $900,000 uh, 
uh, a, a year. Whereas I only got, you know, 0.9 of a million and my bonus was half a half a million. Oh my gosh. Wow. So I'm I'm poor. And I go, you're never going to be happy. There's always <laughs> going to be someone with more money than you. And right. this is going to lead to it's the certain road to absurdity. It's like crazy. It's just like inflation, military inflation goes up so much to buy kit that in the end, all American afford is one tank, one plane, and one ship because it's all got so expensive. That they've been very good, but very expensive. Yeah. Well, you, you've hit another topic there, which is for another day. I'm, I'm actually outside my business so far, been doing some workshops recently on the topic of money. Yeah. But what I call money shadow. Oh. And realizing that there's so many beliefs we have about money that are very unhealthy. And they're often driven by some of the same things that drive our business beliefs and things like that and self-beliefs. But think about this. We actually don't talk about money unless we're bragging about things we bought with the money. Or how much we saved by getting it at Goodwill. Right. I mean, <laughs> like if think about this, this question, think about your five best closest friends. Yeah. Do you know, have they actually told you how much money they make? No, no. Now we say, well, we don't talk about that because it's just rude. But I would say, actually, we have a terror, a fear of sharing that because it's this topic of now I'm going to be judged. I'm going to be compared to you. I got to make sure that my number is bigger than yours or closer than yours. Uh, it's, it's an interesting piece around mm. money and the beliefs we have about money. Yeah. The, the other piece I wanted to close the loop on was your Craig and Jonathan, you both said, we know that people, money's not the most important thing. And a lot of business owners have said, yeah, that stuff must be wrong because all I hear from people is money to which I tell them, well, money's actually fifth or sixth, assuming it's some reasonably fair compensation, money is fifth or sixth, but if they don't get all the other five things in front of it, all you're going to hear about is money. That's why yeah. money is first in the conversation because you're not giving good. them the opportunity yeah. to grow, the opportunity to develop, the opportunity to, to get better at things, the opportunity being engaged. You're not yeah. giving them that. So now it's all about money. Yeah, you better yeah, pay yeah. me now. Yeah, I yeah. was working with the company for good 11 point. years and I knew <laughs> that I was underpaid relative to you know the work that I was doing as a chief technology officer and so forth. But, you know, it was a $15,000 disparity a year, but I thought, you know what? Now, part of that was maybe scarcely thinking of, oh, I can't find another job where I would enjoy it as much as what I have here because it was a great company to work for. And so I really enjoyed what was there. Um, ultimately, it ended up being a really good thing because I spun out my first company from there as well. But I was willing to forego some of the money because a lot of those other needs were being met. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and as a classic, one, one of my other uh, traders paid a lot of money and uh, it was bonus time. And his boss came into his office and he, he put down a check and he goes, there you are. And he walked out. <laughs> oh, and, and no. The, the check, guess what the check, how much it was? It was his bonus was $600,000. Just on a check. There you are. <gasps> And he goes, do you know what? I could have saved them half a million. They could have paid me $100,000 bonus and take me out for lunch, talked about my ambition, my hopes, my yes. aspiration. Oh my Thank me specifically for what I'd done. 
asked about the wife, the kids, how I was getting on, and, and just had a lovely lunch where I felt he cared. But Jonathan, me. that takes time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that takes humility. And that <laughs> takes and that takes humanity and heart, Ooh, which we yeah. all talked about. And that that that's that's don't, you know, they, they rip your heart out in some banks and uh, an investment company. They rip your heart out and they eat it alive in front of you <laughs> just to make sure that you know you've got to be tough. Wow. Well, and I'll tell you, I, I think that point about time, Craig, is so interesting because my question to leaders, positional leaders now, is what the hell are you doing that you don't have time for your people? Because exactly. actually, that's your job. That right. is actually your job. And I think most leaders today, positional leaders, are doing things every day that is not actually their job if they're a leader. Yeah. Oh, yeah. but I have to do these reports. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're spot on. Their job is to lead and to manage and to know their people and know everything about them. I, I had a great upbringing in the military, as you'd imagine, because leadership, you know, they, they must have spent, I reckon, $280,000 on my development. Oh, yeah, my 20 for years. sure. In business, if they spend $28,000 and they go, that's a lot of money to spend during <laughs> your career, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, we'll give you $800 a year. Go take Rob, a class. Do it online this class. Is, yeah, being being a constant learner, one of the things that you know I really enjoyed about that company is they paid for half my MBA. It's like, okay, sweet, this is a good thing. But that's very nice. So yeah. one of the things, Jonathan, you you say you've you've come up in the military. One of the things that Jeff and I have heard from a couple of different podcast guests is this whole idea of in the military, we want to love our people. Is that what you experienced? Uh, I hadn't ever heard. Uh, I remember when I finished in the military or just as I was leaving, I was going to write my first book and I was going to call it Loving Leadership. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And, and I asked this general who I'd served with, you know, would he be interviewed for the book? And he goes, no, no, I don't want a book about <laughs> loving leadership. That's far, that's far too, far too, woo, you know, stuff. So, so you have to be careful. And there's all the different Greek versions of love, obviously. Yeah. Um, but but it has to be in a way that lands well for people. But actually, in the, in the best units that I was in, there was love between the various people who would die for each other as right. my father died to save his navigator and to look after the other guy. That was love. Um, and, and you rarely find that in organizations, that they really love and care for the people they have. But I've come across many inspiring men and women who do. Yeah. They, they, and this is where, that's why I quite like The Motive by Patrick Lencioni, because if you really love your job of being a leader and running great meetings and caring for your people, and as I say in the military, I used to have a little black book. And that little black platoon commander's notebook, it would fit in my, my combat pocket. And it was all the 30 members of my platoon, their, their, their names, their religion, their uh, wife's names and kids' names and hobbies and interests and football team they supported, you know, different uh, courses they'd done. And now I, I wouldn't be in front of them all the time, but I'd, I'd learn it. And then when I was in and I'd say, so Guardsman Campbell, you know, how is it going with Celtic? Are you happy with how they're doing? Yes, sir, they're doing really well. They chat away about that. And then, and then someone else I'd be going, um, so you've got a, got a new baby, I understand. Yes, sir, you know, just arrived and, you know, really excited about it. And, and that kind of care meant that when we went into operations, they would 
follow me into the most deadly spots because they knew I loved and cared for them. Yeah. But other officers, there was almost a mutiny with one. He was sitting there. He was a very arrogant. He was a titled, a titled officer. So, you know, um, family aristocracy. And his soldier came in and said, sir, sir, you know, I've got a problem. And I was sitting in the office with him. And, and, you know, something personal I need to talk about, sir. Oh, come on, Carol, don't waste my time. What is it? He said, with his boots up on the desk, reading the paper. Wow. You know, clearly, clearly arrogant man. And he said, sir, well, can I talk in private? No, no, go on. These guys are here. They won't mind. Oh, well, so my, my girlfriend's pregnant. I don't know what to do. Oh, for God's sake, Campbell, go away. I'm busy. But, wow. Uh, and we just went like, what? And the guy, the guy saluted, marched out. The platoon, his platoon almost mutinied. They would not follow that man. He actually had to be moved because the soldiers would not go to war for him because wow. he so- would not go to war for them. And he didn't care when a man came with the humility to ask for help in a very personal thing. And he just was too arrogant. I could not believe that. Wow. And that is just not the way that good leadership goes on for me. That's yeah. the antithesis. Reminds me of uh, Band of Brothers. I just watched that again recently. And you have, you know, the dichotomy of, of Dick Winters and then the, uh, his commanding officer, early, early age. Or what, who was it? was uh, David Sw- Schwimmer. Yeah, Captain Sobel. Sobel, yes. And, oh, my gosh, night and day difference between the two. Yeah. So yeah. one question I really want to make sure we get asked and answered here, Jonathan. And it's funny because I got an email this week from a friend of mine asking this same question. So I'll take his version. He said, you know, Jeff, help me out. You do a podcast, you speak, you share these ideas. I watch your bed talks, your videos every day about these ideas. Do leaders out there, they just somehow don't hear all this? (laughs) Uh, Not just me, but he said, everybody's saying the same thing. Every coach, every consultant, they're all saying the same things we're saying. Why isn't it happening? And I think there's a lot of truth to that. It's not happening. And I'm curious, Jonathan, why, what's in the way of people changing how they lead? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and Jeff, my experience is there's a very big difference between know-how and show-how. <laughs> and, and, and they often know it. They get it intellectually. But many of them lack the emotional and social intelligence to have a big heart and really care. They just want to make the money, do the job, have an easy life. And so they may not continue to study and learn right. and, and go on, uh, you know, listen to uh, YouTube videos or your podcast or things like that, because they, they, they are quite busy and then they're hugely busy. So they just keep their head above water but they're not lifelong learners necessarily. They may have been to get there, but once they get there, they think, I've arrived. I don't need to learn anymore. I've arrived. I know it all. Uh, and if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. Shut up and listen to me. And so Just they do don't this. think about the do world this. changing around them. No, no. And like sharks, that if they stop moving their gills, apparently, <laughs> they, they drown. So they've got to keep moving, but they don't realize that. And so they ossify. And then you have a thing called cyclosclerosis, which is a hardening of the attitudes. <laughs> All right. They get stuck. I like that one. This, I like this, that this, one. This, this same view, cyclosclerosis, a hardening of the attitudes. So what about, let's go to the next step, though. 
I would agree with you. There are people that just don't know it. They're not learning and growing. I would actually say that's a small percentage because I think it's hard to avoid it, this information. So mm-hmm. either they don't believe it, but like what gets in the way of the leaders who hear this message and choose not to? I, I don't know if that's the case, Jeff. I don't, I don't think that everybody is inundated with it. I think they are. I, I, I would, if, Take it further, Jeff. Well, I'll just give you my opinion. My opinion is the, the biggest problem is a complete lack of self-awareness and not looking in the mirror and telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And it's leaders who believe they're already doing those things. Yeah. And they're not acknowledging, as Walt pointed out, that they've got fears going on that get in the way of doing those things, but mm-hmm. they're never going to, they're not acknowledging the fear. And if they don't acknowledge the fear, then they'll let the fear stop them. They think, that, like Tommy Spaulding said it as well, you know, 90% of leaders think they're servant leaders and only 10% are. I was <laughs> at a conference almost a year ago from now with six senior leaders at large companies, and each one was asked, and they knew the question was coming, yeah. what are you working on to develop yourself this year? Hmm. And they knew the question was coming. Not one of them had an answer out of six. Yeah. Five, four of them talked about what's well, really important to work on yourself. He said, well, that wasn't the question. What are you actually? Right. I, I agree. I think most people are, are not as in, interested in self-development as we are. No. Uh, and, and you've hit on a really rich vein of a conversation. And of course, I'm very conscious that we ourselves, me, need to have a little humility and humanity in the way that we speak about leaders in these positions because, you know, I've been a managing director. In the PLC. jerks, the frauds, I, I, the, and, and, the and, idiots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I must be careful not to be too judgmental of other people, but just this is what we're experiencing and seeing. And we're dealing with the, the collateral damage of leaders who are not doing 360 feedback and not interested. I had to fight a tech CEO for two years to get him to take a 360 uh, he really he said, I'm not really interested in other people's opinion, which is <laughs> which is worrying. That you yeah. know, you know he's on the narcissistic spectrum. And then when I'd done the the 360 on him and I'd done interviews, 12 20 people in the 360, uh, quite a comprehensive one, and 12 people that I'd had half an hour interviews with each and, and written up a comprehensive report, he didn't like what he saw and didn't want to share it with the chairman and the chief people officer, which he'd said he would do and fired me. I've never been fired before, but this was quite glorious because actually <laughs> it, it, was, it was not healthy working with him. Yeah. But he fired me because I was a narcissistic injury to him, like Trump didn't like people working for him. And if anybody challenged him, he'd just get rid of them, whether they were head of CIA or a, a general or whatever it might be. So it's the, it's the same thing that, that, that people don't like hearing negative feedback and they're not open to being vulnerable, which is that very key phrase that Jeff, you've used. Are they prepared to be strong enough to be vulnerable? And many are not. Well, I'm, I'm curious about this because actually I was writing an article, not an article, a chapter in my next book that I'm working on right now. Just this week I was writing it. And one of the things that hit me about maybe one of the obstacles is all the things we've said. But one is, a lot of people that are in leadership positions today have never seen that kind of leadership before. 
In fact, they're leading right. exactly the way they were taught. Yep. Uh, and in many ways, exactly the way someone's telling them to keep leading. So if you've got a larger organization, maybe they're now, we'll take a, an organization. Now I'm a VP in title and I have people reporting to me, but I still have a president, president who's saying, this is how you lead. And I know I succeeded by doing what that president wanted. And so part of me wonders, I think you said this word near the beginning, Jonathan, it takes courage to lead differently. Mm -hmm. It takes courage to lead. And I think one of those bits of courage is leading differently than maybe you were even taught to lead by saying, I think this needs to change and I'm going to be part of the change. It comes back to the same type of thing that we face when we're raising our children. You know, are we going to be different than our parent was, or are we going to be different than how this other person has raised their children? You know, and we choose how to do that, but we're more possibly more intentional about that than we are about how we're doing, quote unquote, doing leadership because we've seen it modeled. We may or may not have gone through formal training for it. And so we're kind of learning on the job, but not nobody's really telling us how to do it well. I think both you, uh, Craig and Jeff, make some great points. And I'd pick up on that, that courage comes from courage, which is about core, the heart. Uh, and so to have to take courage takes a heart. And, and, and back to this, um, there's a great danger that people are trying to be friends and be popular rather than be respected or even treat people with dignity and have dignity in both ways. And when I did my program, my leadership program at Harvard, Leadership in the 21st Century, uh, Professor Donna Hicks does an excellent book called uh, Leading with Dignity. And, uh, and it, everybody's entitled to dignity. You're not, you're not entitled, you're not born with respect, but you're born with dignity, that people are entitled to their dignity and to be treated so. So I think what people have to do these days is have courageous conversations. And that requires you to be unpopular because they're not going to love you and they're not going to be sending you Christmas cards anymore (laughs) because you're actually saying to someone, it's not working out. And, And there isn't a good fit between what the organization needs and your values and your behaviors. And your behaviors are sounding out so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. So, so it's time for us to part company. And people don't want to do that because of legal ramifications and can't say this, can't say that. And HR say, oh, don't say this. And, you know, put them on a performance management program and get well pro. There's lots of obfuscation, other things are done. Or it's just too difficult to do. Particularly if you, if you ever come across the British civil service, if you want to try and get rid of somebody, it's almost impossible to get rid of them. They keep moving them around. Let me ask you a question, Jonathan, before we wrap up here, and, and that is we, we heard from Ricky Schwartz, who is president of the Center for Agile Leadership, and she was talking about how what she has never seen in her 20 years, somebody that was on a personal improvement plan that actually got better, and yet we'll spend more time with the problem person than we do with our superstar. And, and supporting them and growing them and training them to be so much more than we could have better fit with the organization. Do you see the same thing? Boom. Yeah, I do. Big time. And I had, I had uh, a leader in, no, it's not, I, I'll better not say where. Big famous brand. <laughs> yeah, right. they, they, they make burgers. It's a big famous brand. And um, 
they, uh, the HR director came to me and he said, I want to get rid of this guy who's on our exec. Uh, can you coach him so he'll work out that he needs to go? <laughs> oh, God. Well, there's all, sorts of, there's all sorts of things going on with that. Wow. But I went, I said, and of course, you know, coaches often, if we're not careful, we prostitute ourselves. Yeah, of course, I'll be his coach. Yeah, no problem. Uh, and I went, no. They went, what? No one says no to me. Your firm always does what I want. I said, well, I'm saying no, I won't do that. But I will coach you to have the courageous conversation with him <laughs> about the fact that he needs to leave because of certain behaviors. Wow. And, and, and we, we let people get away with really bad behaviors and they're not held to account, which is why I like Marshall Goldsmith's stakeholder-centered coaching, which I got came to New York to be trained in that. And my wife did too, yeah. where, where you're guaranteed measurable leadership growth. You're, you're measuring, you're doing a 360, pick two behaviors. They pick two behaviors and, and their stakeholders all know the two areas they're working on. <laughs> and every month they get feedback on that and feed forward on to how to improve. And then at the end, if they've approved according to their eight stakeholders, not me or the, or the client, but according to others, I get paid. If they don't improve, I don't get paid. I think wow. that's skin in the game, brother. Skin in the game. I love that. Beautiful stuff. So, Jonathan, a uh, couple questions. But first of all, is there anything in particular you want to promote to our listeners? Um, I just love to hear from them. I'm on LinkedIn. You can get in touch with me there. And also, you need to see an outstanding podcast interview, number 138, with Jeff <laughs> Nishwitz, which is really good. And it's on my website, jonathanperks.com. Um, and, and there's lots of material and book reviews and things like that that people can look at. But that that uh, podcast, Jeff, you really were hugely authentic. I'm not just teasing. I'm actually serious. I thought it was a fabulous podcast and it just went live, as you know, uh, this week. So it's, uh, it's great. Well, I'm looking forward to actually listening to it because a lot of times I don't remember. It went happened. live this morning, went live this yeah, morning in UK I, time. So I you can, will, it's on Apple, Spotify, and it's on the website. Well, thank you for that, Jonathan. You mentioned a book question. So tell us about the book that people okay. need to make sure they read. Um, I think you can tell I have a, a a need to learn and grow yeah. because I'm dyslexic. Uh, my way of learning is auditory. So I've just listened, but you can read it, to a book called The Promise That Changes Everything, semicolon, I Won't Interrupt You, written by a lovely American called Nancy Klein, who's in her 70s now. And it is profound. And it's about listening. It's about all the things that you guys stand for. But um, I, I think of the books I've read lately, that is the one that could be the greatest life hack for any leader oh. is The Promise by Nancy Klein. Well, I just started listening to it at your suggestion. So I am beginning that journey. So thank you for that, Jonathan. And one more quick question here. I'm going to go with this one. You get a chance to have dinner with someone living. Who do you want to have dinner with? And what's the one question you're going to ask them? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to be on Necker Island with Richard Branson because he's a fellow <laughs> he's a fellow dyslexic, and um, uh, my, my question to him would be: uh, How can you continue to grow, but yet keep your honesty, integrity, and transparency as you continue to grow your business? Because it's always a hard one for any leader. 
Wonderful, wonderful. And all of this is wonderful, Jonathan. Thank you for being here, for sharing. Yep. And as I often say, more importantly, thank you for the work you do in the world and for the heart that you put into your work. Well, I'm grateful you. you exist. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, Craig. And it's been an absolute honor being on your series. I've had a ball. So thank you very much. Enjoy the conversation. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.